Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. We are in the midst of a, a series, which has been for three weeks. Next week, we have Father's Day. But this series is really speaking into what is God's vision for this moment. And the older I get, I recognize there's moments. And moments, there's normal time where time goes along and things are just coasting. But then there's moments which are really crucial and strategic. And the passage I want to read to you from the book of Hebrews is coming at a moment. The church has been born. This group of people who were following Jesus, often not getting it, have then seen the risen Messiah move amongst them. He's commissioned them with the task to go into all the world and make disciples. The Holy Spirit's fallen on them and the church has been born. And often we use the phrase, the early church is this moment where incredible miracles are happening. The church is growing. This is like the real stuff. This is the kingdom of God breaking out. But the writer of Hebrews here is writing to a generation where this is perhaps one generation away. They know some of the people, maybe some of the people are around, but there's been a generation past and some of this stuff is now not lived experience, it's memories. So this is what he says to that group of people in Hebrews 10. He says this, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur on one another towards love and good deeds, not giving up, meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is a really interesting moment. The early church is a time, as I said, we look back to as this ideal. Yet within one generation, the writer of Hebrews is having to say, guys, don't forget. The writer of Hebrews is encouraging them forward. The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't give up meeting together. Don't give up being the church. Don't give up doing the stuff that what we think the early church is all about. And it's really interesting the reason that the writer of Hebrews is doing this is that there is this tendency in human organizations, whether they be a country a civilization, an organization, an institution, a church, a small enterprise, a small company, a business, a shop, whatever it may be. When humans come together to repeatedly do something which is designed for a bigger good, that a natural kind of thing begins to kick off where it seems to be that there is inevitably a decline. And so it's fascinating to hear this as the writer of Hebrews in the early church now, we would probably think that it's not for a thousand years until things start to decline. But within one generation, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging these people to keep going and not fall into a particular kind of trap. And people are obsessed with this dynamic. People are obsessed with when is something flourishing, when is something pioneering, when is something plateauing, when is something declining, when is something collapsing. We hear this about companies, the heyday of that sporting team, Hollywood's golden era. We look at this very much in our world at the moment. We look at people talking about the decline of the West, the end of globalization. Where is Australia at? Was the height for us in the last couple of decades? Are we heading into something different now? When are we growing? When are we retreating? People have been studying this for centuries. One study, instead of just giving you ideas, I'm going to give you paintings, is a series of paintings done by the American romantic painter in the 19th century, Thomas Cole, where he painted these paintings to show a civilization and to show this process of growth and decline. 
This is the first painting in the series. And it's very early, almost in the morning. The sun is rising. The sun tells part of the symbolism of this story. You'll see that almost the night or the clouds are in retreat. Maybe hard to see from uh, where you are, but there's a few figures, a few humans there, but the humans are living under the reign of nature. Nature is still in control. But we can see on the hill that there's been a little bit of a, a clearing. People are pushing back nature. There's some little dwellings, some huts, and there's some fire. Something's beginning. This is the really early, primal beginning. These are the people eking out something from the really hard scrabble. Let's go to the next one. Nature has been beaten back here, but nature's still present. There's the early parts of something growing here. We see the people are now wearing clothes. You see in the distance this temple sort of structure that's beginning to grow. There's a fire coming out of it. Interestingly, too, you see uh, in the little inlet, little bay there, there's actually a ship being built pointing to something that's going to happen. No longer are these people happy just to live where they are. They want to go further. They want to conquer this sense of humans to go and conquer and take over others and go and explore is there in this picture. Sun is now probably mid-morning. Next picture. And now it's midday. This is the height of this civilization. Nature is almost completely beaten back. You see now that that tiny little temple has now become an incredible uh, building. There's a, there's a palace as well. Everywhere is finery and luxury, incredible tapestries and silks. In the foreground, you can actually see some kind of king or emperor being heralded in this incredible procession. There are statues everywhere to the heroes of, and gods or whatever of this particular sort of society that Cole imagined. There's gold. This is a society at its absolute zenith point. The little ship in the inlet was, was speaking of a time where this is now some big industrial port where people are coming in. This is like a powerhouse. But the next picture shows the next stage. The powerful are now find themselves either overrun by an invading force or by some kind of civil war that's going on. People speculate what this means in this particular picture. The statues have been torn down, the gold is gone, the finery is gone, and almost the kind of night is descending. It's not the big clouds of nature, it's clouds that are actually coming from smoke as destruction is breaking out in this place. And this is where the collapse is beginning. People are being harmed. It's chaotic. It's a disaster, a kind of apocalypse. And then the last picture is almost filled with this kind of looking back. Nature has returned. What was seemingly so powerful is now a distant memory. What were once giant buildings are now ruins. Sun hasn't risen. That's actually the moon. Some kind of night has fallen. And all you're left with is a sort of kind of looking back, a memory. This society, this civilization has gone through these stages. Now, really interesting, Cole wrote this at a time when people saw it in America's history that America would just inevitably keep going. And what Cole was trying to say, which many others have said at different times, no, things aren't guaranteed to keep going. Whether it's a, a nation, small business, family, whatever it is, there's these this, this sort of seasons that things tend to go through. To break this down into a more sort of understandable form in terms of just calling it for what it is, in many ways, this is about different generations. And by generations here, I don't so much mean like baby boomers versus millennials or Gen Z. I mean, the biblical sense of a generation of all the people in the world at a particular time, no matter what age you are. And often you have the first generation who builds something. This could be the founders of a company, the beginners of an incredible institution, that church planter who goes and creates something. This could be Someone at the very beginning, a, a family who decides to get on a boat and go across the other side of the world so that their forebears will live in a different environment, have much more opportunity. A migrant could be the first person in this generation. But the first generation, really what they do is they build it. They build it. They have a vision that something better can be. They realize that where things are at a crisis and they choose a very different way. They build it. And often the ethic that accompanies this first stage is the ethic of sacrifice. 
You never get to build something great just in comfort. Read any story of anyone who starts anything. From an athlete who builds a career as a champion to someone who starts a company. Someone who does anything new. The people who start things, there's always this sacrifice which is there. Then you have a, a generation which comes after this. The first generation has lived through the sacrifice. So they want those who come next to remember those stories of how this thing was built. They pass those stories down. They try and put them in rules and traditions so that the good stuff, the patterns which lead to flourishing, keep happening. They hand it across. The next generation is often in relationship with that first generation, so they want to keep going. These are the kids of the first generation, and so they want to maintain what was built. They sometimes want to tinker it and improve it, but really what their ethic is, their posture is one of service. They're serving this great thing which has been built. But then you get to the third generation, and the third generation lives standing on the shoulder of giants, living in this good thing that's been built, and the danger is they assume that it's always been like this, that this is how things have always been. For them, the comfort that's been built out of this great creation, this institution, whatever it is, this culture, they just assume it. And they get this attitude of entitlement, something Trudy spoke about a few weeks ago. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go and listen to it. But entitlement is expecting all the good stuff without taking any responsibility. First generation takes massive responsibility to start something. The second generation assumes the responsibility to keep it going. The third generation just wants the good stuff to keep going, but they don't want to take responsibility. And then you have the fourth generation comes along and it moves from just assuming it to neglecting it. The patterns which lead to flourishing, the good things, all of these are ignored. And inevitably, this leads to a kind of corruption of the thing that was built. The key things that made it good are no longer happening, and inevitably it starts to fall over. Internal division, corruption. And then you have the fifth generation which comes. The fifth generation buries it. And their posture is a kind of grief. They look back. The world is a much more difficult place. They look back and worry that what was is now lost that things are not going to be as good for them. Now, this is really interesting. We're talking about the church and we're talking about faith today, but inevitably we look at that with our culture and wonder where we are. Where is Australia? Where is whatever the heck we live in, the West, the developed world? Are we, I don't think we're at one. <laughs> we're not the first generation. I don't think we're in second generation. I wonder if actually what we're living through is the move from the third to the fourth stage. And the question is, will we see the fifth? Now, interestingly too, I think when it comes to the church, we're probably even a bit further ahead. I think we're possibly somewhere between maybe four, three and four, but I think actually we're probably deeper into four than we realize. And the question is, will we live through stage five? Now, all kinds of thinkers have postulated, why do things decline? The Roman era declined. The Roman satirist, Juvenile, basically spoke of why he thought this happened. And he spoke of that what seemed to happen was there seemed to be this moral collapse. People collapsed. And he said that people became more, he had this famous term, bread and circuses. People were more interested in the bread of eating and, and consuming and just going to the circuses, which are like the Colosseums, and just entertaining themselves. That basically through luxury, through having too much comfort, the people became soft and they became corrupted morally and actually no longer uh, could the sort of energy of what was great continue. The medieval Arabic scholar, Ibn Khaldun, his theory was, the great things were built at the beginning because there was this sense of communal purpose that people had to band together against nature, against the difficult things in the world, and they had to get this group identity, and they worked together, and they sacrificed for each other for a greater good. The next generation held that value, but then it began to disappear away and move from a communal spirit for a bigger goal to individual goals. So what he said, and he was way ahead of the curve, is that ultimately... 
that civilizations or cultures would move towards intense individualization. Individualism would take over and inevitably people would no longer pursue the big thing for the greater good, for the whole collective. They'll actually pursue it more just for themselves. And he thought once that happens, that civilization, that thing is in huge, huge trouble. Last week, if you were here, I almost did a version of what I thought was happening with us in our culture with this. I talked about this term hyper-reality, which is this culture of images where we forget actually what is real and instead fall into all these mirages constantly assaulted by this idea of the perfect thing that we can never live to. We're running to this ideal, but doing this in this fantasy way which undermines us. So all of these, in a sense, fall into one kind of basket. That what gets us in the end, why things decline is we become too comfortable. There's a moral decline. Individualism takes over. We turn to fantasy versus living in reality. But there's another, I think, more hopeful diagnosis. Now, is this true? I think it is partially true or perhaps wholly true of anything. But another reading, which a number of scholars have gone into, is that what happens is the first generation has a kind of ethic, that ethic, they discover something. That in the midst of doing hard things, you discover something. In the midst of seeking for a bigger goal and working together, you discover something. And it's something that's really hard to put down in a set of rules. It's hard to pass down by tradition. It's only something that you can really experience when you live it with others. Levinsky and Ziblatt call this the norms that are not written down, but are an institution. For example, in the democratic world, there were certain norms that if you're going to hand over as president or prime minister, even if the person you were handing over to was someone who was on the opposite side of politics, you handed it over to them gracefully because you didn't want to head into a civil war. That was a norm. But in our time, we're seeing norms deteriorate. Norms get forgotten. Norms aren't the rules. You can bend them, but they're actually really key. They make the whole system work. Samo Bujar, who looks at all kinds of this big civilizational stuff, he says it's essential knowledge that gets forgotten. The key first generation, the pioneers, get some essential knowledge of how to build stuff, but then that's forgotten as we go down the line. Nicholas Nassim Taleb talks about heuristics, this stuff which is really key that you can only sort of learn through an apprenticeship. You can't Google it. You can only learn it from watching someone. It's not taught. It's caught. But if I was going to boil all of this down and summarize this diagnosis, I'll put it as this. The subsequent generations forget the ingredients that make the special sauce. In my family, there is my grandmother's Christmas pudding recipe. Now, it's about four generations old. And it's got a bunch of ingredients. There's stuff in it like lard. I mean, where do you buy lard? I don't know. Now, what's interesting is my great-grandmother made it, my grandmother made it, my mum's made it, but probably I'm not going to make it. I'm responsible for the decline of Christmas pudding in my family. I will bury it. Or maybe my kids will mourn it. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm corrupted. But it's not just the recipe, it's how they did it. And how that has been passed down is my great-grandmother showed my grandmother, my mum is actually her mother-in-law, she showed her. So it wasn't just the, the recipe, it's not something you could just put online, it was actually here's the kitchen, how they do it, it's this whole thing, they cook all day, it's this whole thing. You may have these traditions in your family, how to make this particular pasta sauce, or how to do that, or how to do this thing over here, or whatever, or how to get into the holiday house by jiggling the key this particular way. Certain things which you just can't Google, but they pass down life on life. And there's a kind of special source that pioneer first generations have, the people who build stuff. And I reckon this is really 
what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get into this second generation. The writer of Hebrews, so if we just go back one there, uh, Tom, uh, the, the, the writer of Hebrews is actually writing to, I think, generation two here. These are people who are part of the church. They're Christians. They're in a Roman you know, empire environment, and they're still following God, but a few things are dropping off. They think they're just doing all the right stuff, but the writer of Hebrews is going, be really, really careful you don't miss some of the special sauce ingredients. What are these? Let's go on. Thank you, Tom. Like, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This is like, yes, Jesus died on the cross. We're now the living temple. You can come close to God. Your sins have been taken care for. You don't have to live in shame. You have to live with regret. You can come close to, to God. This is what Jesus has done. So that's the stuff. You could technically read that in a letter. But then this is the life on life, special source bit. Therefore, let us hold unswervingly. It's holding unswervingly. It's a posture that we actually take. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. These are lived truths. And let us consider how we may spur on one another towards love and good deeds. This is not just an individual thing. If it's just something written on a piece of paper, a Google document, something you can just look on your phone, it's something that you can just ingest as an individual. But he's saying no. This is actually part of the special source is that this is done in community with others. Just by one, it's not the same. And we have to do this all together, spurring each other on. It says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. That vital practice of life on life, of community in discipleship, that's going to only happen when people actually are in community and in discipleship together. That kind of essential knowledge, those robust norms, that heuristics, that ingredients for the special source, one of the key ones is keep turning up, keep turning up doesn't happen in a flash, but you can begin to change more Christ-like. When you walk with other people who are doing that together, you can't do that on your own. And what he's saying here is there's a pattern in the world, even back in the first century, just fall back in your own patterns of passivity, not turning up. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, this is... The writer of Hebrews, I think, speaking to that second generation to ensure that the early church doesn't go into a form of decline. Now, as I said, I don't think we are at stage two. I think where we are is possibly stage three, but probably stage four. Assuming it and neglecting it. And maybe actually what's happened is the pandemic has sped up how long it would have been, 10, 15 years between stages three and four. Now, that's why I began by saying I think this is a moment. The writer of Hebrews is writing at a strategic moment. We're at a strategic moment. We're at a crucial moment. We're at a moment where God has us, however old you are, part of this generation now, alive on earth now, in a church now. And if we're way down this cycle towards decline, we need to ask the question, we need to pray, how do we turn this around? Now, I believe part of that is going back to the special source. What did first generations do? But before I go there, I just want to explain something also about this moment. I noticed something happening in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, and it was growing and growing and growing. And it was becoming louder in the culture, but it was becoming louder in pastoral conversations. I'd hear it from people at Red, I'd hear it as I traveled, I'd hear it in different countries. And what it was, was that our world had become a high performance world. Now, patterns I've been talking about, patterns are things that you repeatedly do that lead to a good outcome. Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. We understand this, that if you exercise every day, you'll become healthy. 
that if you drop a brick on your head every day, that's going to have a bad outcome. You are what you repeatedly do. Now, humans have always done these things. But what our society started doing was throwing more and more of these things at you, more and more patterns. In our jobs, there was more things to do. I have somewhere in my room, my high school reports. My high school reports are literally like that big. It would have taken my high school teachers seven minutes to fill out my report. Now, if you're a high school teacher today, reports are much more than that. In so many of our jobs, more and more is expected of us, more and more regulation, more and more procedures, more and more meetings you've got to go to, more and more expected to you, more and more ability for your, your boss to get onto you. What's happened is we're expecting more and more and more of people. Our wages haven't gone up at the same time as this. More and more of people. We're also, if you look at the options available to us outside of work, in recreation, there is more and more things that you can do, more and more options, more and more places to go, more and more experiences that you can have, more and more patterns thrown at you. If you're not doing those patterns and you're not living a high-performance life, you're still judging yourself because you're surrounded by a technology which shows you everyone else seemingly have this wonderful, successful, high-performance life and killing it at everything. So even if you're not living a high-performance life and you choose not to or you feel like you can't, you're still being oppressed by the high-performance life. We've, not, we've gone from a, a world of don't do this, as many cultures are, to being oppressed for what we should be doing, all the things you could be doing. If you're single, here's all the options you have before you. If you're a married couple, young, here's all the things you should be doing. If you've got kids, Here's all the things you should be doing. Here's all the things your kids should be doing. Here's how you should be parenting. Endless, endless things before us. Plus, endless technology, endless content. It's not even technology. It's just endless, endless content, endless Netflix series. We're at the point now, people say, have you heard this series? It's incredible. I've never even heard of it. There's just bazillions of them. And what was happening was, this was just getting more and more burdensome on people and people were absolutely burning out. Absolutely burning out was the pastoral issue. And this would, this would manifest in things like anxiety, exhaustion. People didn't always have a language for it. But we were overdosing on too many patterns. 2020 comes. And we go into a pandemic. When Melbourne realizes it's going into a longer lockdown, and not just Melbourne, but all across the world, the amount of people who actually shared that were relieved was phenomenal. Speaking to a person just at the park, he had a busy job and he just was so relieved that he didn't have to go into the office. Everything wasn't expected of him. He didn't have to run his kids to 27,000 things that weekend and be a taxi driver. And he was almost not looking forward to when things opened up again. Now, he understood the pandemic and all of that. But we were being overburdened with too many things from the high-performance society, too many patterns. So 2020 happens. In 2020, everyone's like, I'm going to start new patterns. People are baking sourdough. They're running around the block. You're going for a walk. Hello, hello. Remember that bit? Hello, good day. Hello, hello. You'd walk around, people would be like, hello. It was just this like, it was amazing. People started to rethink their life. People moved. All kinds of stuff happening. But then it kept going, kept going. And even the new patterns seemingly became burdensome. Baking sourdough when you're trying to do your job from home, really hard. Homeschooling, goodness me. Disconnection. And what happened was that people sort of got stuck. We'd pause so many of the patterns, but now we're re-entering. And we're in this, again, there's the crucial thing happening in the world, there's the crucial thing happening in the church, and it's intersecting with a crucial thing that's happening to us. Where many of the patterns we've done, we've paused. Social patterns, things we should be doing. We're picking some up. People are traveling again. They're doing different things. But there's still this weird, like, half-paused. It's like on your video where you can press it twice, and it's just advancing really slowly. It's like a pause with the different frames. And so at this moment, what we choose to pick up is really, really crucial. 
Now, you know why I think we were running around like headless chickens? It was an individual thing. It was a cultural thing. The overwhelming message of our culture was do all of this stuff, run like a headless chicken, and you'll find meaning. Go on every holiday, every event, do all of this stuff and you'll find meaning. Capture it online, show it to others so that you'll get a feedback loop where your identity is reinforced and you'll find meaning. At your work, you'll find meaning, so keep going. Do more stuff and you'll find meaning there. Find meaning in your singleness, find meaning in marriage, find meaning in your kids. Make your kids have meaning by doing more and more stuff. Now, do patterns that lead to flourishing bring meaning? Yes. Endless dumping of patterns don't. It just brings burnout. And so we've seen the myth of that. It's been exposed. This is the big trends, the great resignation, the great sea change, the great green change, the quiet resignation, all these trends that people are writing articles about. At the end of the day, what all of it is about is we've realized as a culture, as individuals, that by running around like a headless chicken, you don't have meaning. It doesn't give it. It just continually creates more anxiety and more exhaustion. But we have to re-enter into the world. We have to return. Life, I predict, summer, sort of slowly sprigs of spring, the Melbourne endless winter, of like after, which feels like it's gone for two years, is ending. And sometimes between now and February, it's going to return to some kind of what the future looks like. And so now is this time where we can ask the question, what kind of patterns do we want to say yes to? But that intersects with this moment where Society is at this really interesting point. Society, I think, is, is, is heading into some kind of decline, not just me. All of the experts across the board are talking about it like this. So many challenges before us, economic, environmental, geopolitical, cultural. And what a moment for the church to actually step in and the message of Jesus Christ to go to the ends of the world, for people to be discipled, the truth that we understand. If there was ever a right moment, this is it. But the church, in stage three or four of entitlement, assumption, neglect, corruption, is unable to meet that challenge. So this is where we need, at this crucial moment, to get back and discover the special source, the ingredients for the special source. How do you build something? Now, how do you build something is not necessarily running around like a headless chicken. How you build something in a kingdom of God way is to pick up patterns, but the right patterns with the right posture. Because when you have the right patterns with the right posture, that actually gives you a leverage point. The Greek mathematician Archimedes said, give me a place to stand and I'll move the universe. Where is the leverage point? What are the key few things that we can do that actually create so much movement? I realized this in my ministry early on. I could go and fly to the other side of the world and speak to 4,000 people at that church and they've heard all these speakers before and they're staring at you and crossing your arms. And it looks wonderful from the world's perspective. But I could then have a conversation closer to home with 10 people and that conversation teaching with open hearts would advance things in a greater kingdom way. It's not the measurements of the world. It's what's the right kingdom leverage points. And I think at this moment, we've got to switch our brains from where we are. We have to step into a first-generation mindset. First-generation mindset. Now, I said everyone at this time in history is in God's generation. I really believe that. But I particularly want to say to young girl people, and I'll let you define whether you see yourself as young. You need to see yourself in that first generation place. The car has been going down the freeway with the acceleration pressed from previous generations and it's running out of fuel. That's not the end of the story. This happens all the time in God's history, in church history, in biblical history. But there now needs to be a new generation which actually begins to start the car up again, turn the ignition on, press the accelerator, learn how to drive. And we need to do that not by just more information, endless articles, downloading opinions, hearing what people want to say. Actually, we need to do that 
through engaging the right patterns with the right posture. And we need to do this by saying, what is the special source that you see at every revival, every, every moment when God turns things around, every great awakening? I think there's some key things that you see in the lives of individuals and you see in the lives of the church. And this is true if you want to turn your individual life around, your faith around. This is true if, if we want to do that in a corporate sense. This is true for workplaces. This is true for communities. This is true for everyone. So you're ready. I'm going to give you three special source ingredients. Before Tom puts the slide up, I just want to say this first one. If you, and we don't really go to Halloween parties in Australia, if you go to, do go to a Halloween party and you want to dress in a costume that will terrify people, where they are screaming and crying in fear and running from you, dress up as this first one. Let's go. Ask you a, a really countercultural, subversive question. Why is commitment, in all its forms, so absolutely feared by the contemporary world? People are terrified by it, run from it. Now, lots of people have interest, intent, good feelings about something, getting fit, being in that relationship, becoming good at art, learning Portuguese. But the people who actually get there in those things, they don't just have intent, they don't just have interest, they don't just have good feelings about something because when difficulty comes, intent doesn't get you there. When struggle comes, when you don't feel like it, good feelings don't get you there. Interest wanes. What gets you to where you're being called to go is not interest, intent, adherence, good feelings. What gets you there is commitment. And what you see is that first generation pioneers, they're not the smartest people, they're not the most talented people always, but the people have a passion for the vision. Lots of people have got a passion for the vision. I can get up and say, I could, I could get up here and give you the Wuhan talk and start with a really cool story, end with a really cool story, be funny and talk about God turning the church around at this moment and give you three points which are sort of applicational but don't really call you to anything and we'd all stand here and clap at the end, we'd all feel good. But the people who take that message and do something with it are those who say, I'm going to be committed. Commitment is an essential, special source ingredient. This is why... The writer of Hebrews says this. Not giving up meetings together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. I'm just going to be real honest. It's like we're just that honest moment. <laughs> so many people come to us at Red, and not just Red, all churches at the moment, and say, I just want to find a church where there's commitment. I just want to find a church with other people who I can do life with and all of this. And huge value on that. Huge value. It's the kingdom of God, living that with other people. And I, like most other leaders in our team, we're like, brilliant. We want that too. But people want it on their own terms. I want community, but I'll turn up when I want. I want everyone else to be there. I want that prayer meeting to be there. I want my church to do that justice thing in the community. I want to see Alpha thriving. I want that. But I want everyone else to be committed, but not me. I want to have the option, if there's a better option that weekend, I'll go and take it. But what actually builds stuff, what is actually the pioneering spirit, what is actually what God uses in people, not the smartest, but people are sold out for Jesus and they don't just have adherence or intent or interest, what they actually have is commitment and they're just going to say, come hell or high water, I'm walking forward. And I'll turn up and maybe church that week was rubbish and just boring and it was awkward and there was hardly anyone there in this post-weird pandemic thing. But I'm turning up and I'm turning up and I'm building a cathedral with a brick, one brick at a time. And the brick is actually your commitment. There's no way of getting around that. And we stand on the shoulders of giants. We're able to rent this building. This building twofold is because of previous people's commitment. Number one, was the church able to rent this building because of the giving in seasons previous to this? People committed in giving their money. It's often sacrificially. Secondly, this was a 20-year project, this building, by Nunawanning Seventh-day Adventist Church. We rent this often. 
They had committee meetings. People gave. People gave like hugely sacrificially. They sat and, and, and this thing was built and people sacrificed and they were committed to this goal over 20 years. And we get to Swan in here and it's brilliant and there's no signage because they meet on Saturdays, Adventists, we meet on Sundays. People think this is our building. The ministry that's enabled here is because of previous commitments. You don't get to build anything great with a relationship, a job, a church without commitment. And I think the fact that people are so afraid of it today is actually the work of the enemy. Because we fear commitment because we don't want to give up personal autonomy. Commitment is one of the key things in moving the kingdom of God ahead. And we need to rediscover the special source. And a world where people are no longer committed at all levels, at soon there's going to be generations above who pass away who, are not com- who, are, who were the committed ones who are keeping everything running. When that passes, it's not going to be a great world to live in. But when we rediscover commitment, God begins to show up. And I believe too that God's been challenging people in this room on this. We need to be countercultural on this one. Number two, a bit less confronting. No, it's not. I tricked you. <laughs> Sacrifice. We were talking this week in the board about some of the giving challenges that I outlined earlier. And we were talking about, you know, how do you get to the point where it's actually back to where it needs to be or where it needs to be and you know, you can come up with a number and oh, we need this and 16% growth or whatever in giving and blah, blah, blah. There's a real sense that actually what God is calling us into is not just to get there. It's actually inviting us into something of sacrificial. God, when we're sacrificial, there's been times with me where I felt God's asked me to give money to something and I know they need that much. And the Holy Spirit's just said, no, go above and beyond that. And in those moments, I'm not going to promise you, like some churches do, that you do that and then you're going to get a Ferrari. You won't. But what you do do is you actually open up a spiritual dynamic in the kingdom. When we live sacrificially, it's not just about money, it's about time, it's about attitude. When you go into your workplace and you go, I'm actually going to live sacrificially. I'm not here for myself. This is not about me writing my little story about being the hero of the story and finding meaning in this workplace. I am here as a child of God. I am here as an ambassador of the kingdom. And I'm actually going to live sacrificially. We're called to bring everything before the altar. God, I put before the altar everything. In Romans 12, 1, it says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, a view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do we really think about offering our entire bodies to God? No, we think our bodies are our personal vehicles or playgrounds to provide us pleasure. That's what the world teaches us. But actually what Scripture says is your body is actually a living temple. It is created to actually facilitate the kingdom of God. We don't need to go to a temple and offer up sacrifices for our sin. Jesus has done that on the cross, but we do live sacrificially as priests in his kingdom. This is your true and proper worship. Yes, the words we sang at the beginning of the service and we'll sing at the end, that's worship. But actually, the living and giving of the whole of our lives, putting everything before you. God, I put my finances before you. I put my time before you. I put my attention before you. I put my whole life before you, everything. I put it on the line, that relationship everything before you. That's true and proper worship. And when you do that, it's spiritual warfare. You know why it's spiritual warfare? Because the last part of this verse explains why. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the ring of your mind. When you live sacrificially, you're going to run smack bang into the pattern of this world. The pattern of the world is going to come at you. It's going to tempt you. It's going to offer you things because that's actually the opposite of the kingdom of God, to live for self. But no, First generation sacrificial pioneers who partner with God to build great things do it sacrificially. I just want to say some of you in that room have been doing this. Some in this room have been sacrificial at moments. Your mates are doing stuff and you've said no. Some have quietly given, quietly volunteered, done it in hidden spaces. And maybe sometimes you've wondered, like, why is this? Is this worth it? I want to say to you it is. 
Don't underestimate the echoes in the kingdom of God when you live in this way. C.S. Lewis has this beautiful image in his book, The Great Divorce, when this character goes to heaven. It's like a novel around heaven. And this character sees this woman and she comes and she's like a celebrity in heaven. And this character says, who is this? Is this a famous person? And so this is just a woman who no one knew, who just kept some cats, but lived fully for God. And in the upside-down kingdom where crowns are yours in the kingdom of God, there is a completely different metric. Don't be fooled by the pattern of this world. Look for the kingdom patterns of sacrifice that actually stop treasure in heaven, that break into this world in the form of the kingdom of God. Be renewed in our minds how we think about these things. Last one. Perseverance. Perseverance. If you look at what the writer of Hebrews says in the next passage, in I think chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says this in the next verse. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you receive what he has promised. You have been sold a lie. You have been sold a lie by culture and you will continue to be sold a lie that to get good things, you don't actually need to go through difficulty. To get good things, you don't need to go through awkwardness. To get good things, to live a good life, you don't need to go through tough seasons. As a human being, you will. But sacrificial first-generation pioneers, which is what we need at this moment, which God is actually calling us to be, they realize that they have a commitment, they have an, a posture of sacrifice, and so they keep walking forward. Yep, it's not here yet, but I'm going to keep walking forward. Yep, it's not here yet, but I'm going to commit. Yep, it's not here yet, but I'm going to live sacrificially. And each of those bricks is building the living temple of God. Not bricks that you can see in this world, but bricks are part of the rebuild. And when you persevere, what actually happens is you start to build character, maturity. We have an absolute maturity deficit in our culture at this point in time. We have a deficit in the church, I hate to say. But when you persevere, God builds Christ-likeness in you. When you follow in Jesus' footsteps, follow him through easy seasons, through tough seasons. There will be golden seasons. My prayer is that after the last two years, there is a, a nice season for people in the world. But also, we need to keep walking when it's tough. We need to keep pressing forward. We need to walk forward with perseverance with God. So we're at a moment, business as usual is over. We're at a moment here. God has a vision for red. God has a vision for the church at this point in time. I don't know if we're between stages three and four, we're somewhere there. But actually, we can with God, turn these things around. When we follow and be dependent upon God and stop trying to do it in our own way and actually go back and see how did God work through individuals at the beginning to turn things around, there is an invitation that God has for us at this moment. And what actually if this moment, after this strange season, what if this moment as churches are struggling and not knowing what to do and they're trying to get back to some sort of baseline, what if at this moment God began to do something really different here at Red? What if at this moment, when people said, ah, oh, young adults are working away, walking away, older generations, they're just retiring and not coming back to church. Ah, oh, people are not giving like they used to. People are not interested in sharing their faith. People are deconstructing their faith. What if at all those moments, the opposite things happened here? And what if actually something really incredibly hopeful and life-giving began to occur amongst us? I believe that is a possibility that God has for us an invitation, but he needs a first generation with the posture of sacrifice, perseverance, and commitment. Real quick, we realized in this season that people don't need to just go back to running around like a headless chicken, but we wanted to have invitations. Invitation one, don't give up the habit of meeting together. Increasingly, people who came every two weeks are now coming every four weeks. People who come every four weeks are coming every eight weeks. And people who come every eight weeks are coming every 16 weeks. And people who come every 16 weeks are not coming back. <laughs> Don't give it a habit. When we come, when we hear the word, when we worship, this does something in you. This does something in the spiritual realm. We have opportunities to pray. We, have, we felt God asking us to expand this. We have opportunities to pray before this service. We have opportunities to pray before the 9 a.m. We have opportunities on a Tuesday night to pray between 7 and 9. We have opportunities on a Thursday morning. 
And we felt this week, in the midst of this, as we're looking at all the trends, we felt instead of just going, let's just try and fill them up, we felt actually let's expand this. Let's actually expand this. So we're actually going to open. You'll hear more. We're going to have more prayer opportunities. We're going to see more people coming to pray because if something's going to turn this moment around, it's actually going to be prayer. We're going to have a kingdom come in a few weeks where people can come and pray and worship together. So we felt it's not about doing 20,000 more things. And I'm not asking you to come to all of those prayer meetings, but I am maybe challenging you to come to one and begin to pray. Again, we'll talk more. We're going to open up opportunities after the service to have like 10-week intensive discipleship where if you've been floating in your faith since the pandemic, come learn, grow in your faith. Don't run around like a headless chicken, but be proactive. Pick up the right patterns with the right posture. And I believe that out of this, God will begin to do a new thing. Let's stand. God, we recognize the moment that we're in. This is a crucial moment, and you have an invitation before us. I want to thank you, Father, for the previous generations who have sacrificially gone before, started great things. And we know that we're not called to start great things in our strength, but you're a great God. And we follow your way that great things will get built. I just want to pray now off any confusion from the world, any confusion last season. Jesus, we ask that you show us what are the right patterns that you need to pick up, whether we've perhaps not been reading your word in the way we were previously, perhaps not praying, perhaps some habits that are not life-giving have come back in. Maybe we've become patchy in our attendance. God, we just pray that you can help us remember the ingredients of the special sauce. God, we just pray for a different story this time. We pray for an alternate story. We actually pray, Father, for you to do something different here. Break the trend line. We want to pray, Father, you'll release funds, first of all, but not just funds. Father, we, we pray for people who can come and serve, serve what you're doing in your kingdom. God, we, we want to start new services. We want to serve the community in new ways. We want to run more alpha. We're going to do so many more things. And Father, I just thank you for every person in this room, the web of relationships they have, the opportunities before them. These are your salt and light in the world. Help them to pioneer in those spaces. Do something different, we ask. We love you, God. Lead us. And may your Holy Spirit in these moments work in our hearts, convict us, challenge us, encourage us, edify us. As we sing these words, we ask. Awesome.